And welcome to the Movie Bunker podcast with me, Matt. It's me, Chris. Hi, Chris. How are you today? I'm all right. You all right? Yeah, you're feeling better after the Christmas sensitivities. <laughs> I'm on the wine. I'm on the wine. <laughs> it's on the wine. So, Chris, what's coming up in the podcast today? We've got an amazing interview with James King. James King is a film critic and movie journalist don't introduce uh, James King to our well, audience they know who he is yeah he should know who he is but basically he was a, a big uh, film critic on radio BBC Radio 1 we talk a bit about that we talk about film journalism in, ju- in general he's got so much experience as well and worked with some great people um, and also has brought out a book and we talk a bit about that and and he gives us a little bit of a, a hint on what films we could dabble in in the future episodes. It's a great interview. So that's coming up a bit later on. And also the usual stuff, basically. We're back. We're back. We're back. It's the new year. And did, we didn't rest on our laurels. We didn't have a long hiatus. We just simply came straight back and did as we promised. We watched uh, Transformers The Last Night. Do you want to play the trailer, Chris? Here's the trailer. Yeah, I want to see some dare robots. We're not supposed to be here. We're kids, man. We get away with anything. I was just a normal kid. Before my world fell apart. No, 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 no. Look at me. Wake up, Canopy. Went to a normal school. Lived a normal life. Some kids used to tease me. Wow. Who is he? As far as you're concerned, my boyfriend. How long is that maybe going on? They'd say, you run like a girl. Family now. They're gonna take care of you, I promise. Just don't expect any bedtime stories. You throw like a girl. Come on, guys! You fight like a girl. Your mind, you're not going anywhere with me. I want to stay and I want to fight them. You think you're a badass, huh? Is this okay to be a kid, little JLo? Funny what you can do when all you have left depends on it. Done. <laughs> fight like a girl? Yeah, I fight like a girl. Coming with me or what? Don't you? Turn around, what do you got in your mouth? Drop the cruiser right now! Come on, man! Be careful! You get back in your hole and think about what you did! Threatening to do this one for about six, six, seven months. Like, well, no, Ages since the very beginning. Yeah, because we, we, I think before we even started, I'd seen this film. And then there's, and I thought I think we've seen it just before we started doing the podcast. And as I was watching it, I was like, "This is gold uh, podcast material." And and yeah, and we but we kept sort of diving around other genres. And uh, yeah, eventually we ran out of films or excuses not to do it. 
and uh, here we are doing it's, it. It seems appropriate. It's the new year. Let's get the, the, this, this behemoth out of the way. Then we don't have to then, potentially we don't have to do another Transformers film because they're all critically panned, bar maybe the first one, which, uh, which probably got off lightly. It wasn't too bad as an introduction to the, this undertaking of this 80s childhood nostalgia fest uh, for the big screen. Yeah, uh, and so there was a lot of people. I mean, I remember I was I was here for it. I was, I remember in the old days of dial-up. Maybe <laughs> I was downloading <laughs> pictures and screenshots and just to see what was going on with the concept art of this film because I was a massive Transformers fan as a kid. Yeah, the thing is with the Mark Wahlberg Transformers films, and this is no like uh, disparaging on Mark Wahlberg. It's um, I think it's simply of, of the sort of time inside of it. Like I I can't distinguish any of the films like in my head in fact like anything after two really i'm quite i kind of struggle to place where they are in the scheme of things and who was in them and who yeah. did what they, so, they they kind of do melt together into a big blob of <laughs> uh transforming metal yeah yeah it's it's, it's very weird because when the first one was like a big deal because it's like, oh my god, it's, it's the tra- it's the cartoon, it's the book, what's the child, and, yeah. and, and and it got a lot of forgiveness, I think. Let's let's go old school and do the stats. Yeah, um, come on. crack on with some stats. So it was released in uh, 2017. So it's not. It's, is it our most recent film? I think it may be. I think it might be June in America, 2017. Day of my birthday, longest day of the year. That's relevant. Mm. Um, longest film of the year it was 217 million dollars to make uh which makes it the, the most expensive transformers film it made money uh, it, it made, made a less fair bit of money didn't it yeah i think it made less than the other transformers films but it still made loads it's like apparently worldwide um 805 million dollars which is huge yeah they've all made loads of cash as well haven't they so that's why yeah. they keep churning them out why wouldn't you make these films there is no reason why you'd stop making these i mean obviously as we speak bumblebees in the cinemas but critically that's doing very well so let's let, it, i think we got room to talk about bumblebee a bit later on because i think that, that that just goes to show within in the right writers and the right director's hands uh, what could could have been done with this franchise from the very yeah. beginning I've got very strong opinions about this film and the Transformers Ooh. franchise, so I'm, I want to get. I'm going to get meaty with you. Okay. Well, before we get meaty, <laughs> and I, I don't envy you this. Yeah. Can you give me a plop synopsis? Of course I can. So Autobots and Decepticons are at war with humans on the sidelines. Optimus Prime is gone. The key, yeah, the key to saving our future lies buried in the secrets of the past, in the hidden history of Transformers on Earth. So within that plop synopsis, we're given the, I guess the biggest plot point, obviously, is the fact that they've delved into English um, folklore or mythology. Mythology, thank you. Um, and then concocted, yeah, concocted <laughs> this crazy story about how Transformers and, and, and their in, integral part of humankind since the dawn of time, almost. Yeah? Yes, yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's a weird one, isn't it? Because obviously the first film came about and like they, they landed. They landed in that film. We were there. We were watching him. They, they yeah. weren't on the planet. They landed on the planet. It was like 2010, something crazy. 
like that. Sounds like in, mm. in a far, far future past. But now we're led to believe that they didn't land. We didn't see Bumblebee land. He was actually... Well, Bumblebee was always there. He was always present in the oh, first film, in the 2007 film. Yeah, true. You know, obviously we're going to talk bloody geeky gibberish, I think, in this, in this uh, review because Cybertron, their home planet, is basically destroyed or been destroyed. So therefore... So all... many... I mean, that's, that planet's been destroyed for a long time now, but yet it's still floating around with like, yeah. tons of fucking Transformers on it. Yeah, they're all displaced and they all keep arriving and doing bits and pieces. But <laughs> there, there's, a, there's a lot of characters and, and I guess there's a lot of plot. And I guess it's very, very hard to keep up with this film if you've not sort of, I guess, drenched yourself in this, in this kind of current franchise lore, right? So film one, two, three, four, and five, I think this is the fifth one, right? Because you had Transformers, then you had Dark Side of the Moon, then you had yeah. another shit one, and then another shit one, I think, or maybe this was <laughs> this is the fourth or fifth Fallen. one. Revenge of the Fallen. That's oh, okay. Is this the one after Revenge of the Fallen? No, there was another one, wasn't there? Like a, a Oh, one. yes, yes. There's the one with they introduced... Age the, of Extinction. That's the one. Um, I mean, so, the Age of Extinction goes even further back. We have a very 2001 Space Odyssey opening to that film where it's like, ooh, ooh, and then, oh, fucking Transformer. Oh, God. Do you remember that? No. Like, there's a couple of cavemen go to war and all of a sudden they get squished and stuff by a Transformer. Oh, okay. Well, I think that is probably the reason why we, it's all, it's very hard to discuss these films coherently because they're, they are, they are so interchangeable. <laughs> and they change their own history. They're just, they're, they're writing over there in the history constantly. So like I say, like, you know, you had this, the landing and, you know, no one had ever heard of them before. And now with this film, they like imply that, that Transformers not only were here, but they were here for various really large pieces of history. <laughs> One of the main issues with this film, and it is critically panned beyond belief, is that the plot is just incoherent. Yeah. Um, what we've got is essentially three or four storylines converging in. Into yeah. So let, 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 do you want to break it? Break it down. Yeah. Let's not. I'm, I don't want to go from the beginning. No. Say that because it would be impossible with the flick in the belt. But we will start at the beginning because we have this sort of dead zone, unexplained dead zone, where you're not allowed to go in there. There are apparently some Transformers in there and a couple, a, a young girl and some boys go in there. So we have this kind of like the opening, the opening gambit, so to speak, is mm. of, of, of children. So it's, it's kind, kind of, of like, like a, it's dystopian kind of environment almost, isn't it? Yeah, I don't, but I don't understand why is that area roped off? It, it, and it's literally roped off with a chain link fence. Have they yeah. seen Transformers? I don't think that's going to stop them. <laughs> It's like the outskirts of, of America, so it's kind of the, the, dust, the dust bowl, if you like, isn't it? Well, I don't know. The dust bowl. Is, is it, does it not reference some of the scenes from earlier films? Because obviously there's like a, the American Yes, film. yes. And, you know, obviously once, what, what once was a burgeoning uh, metropolis is now ruined beyond belief. So yeah. we have this young girl who 
uh, appears initially to be seemingly important and then doesn't really do well the thing is it's so long in the end you kind of forget she's there but this is one of my main issues with the film the prop you actually missed out the actual very beginning of the film and the very beginning of the film is the medieval scenes with Merlin right oh played, yes sorry right, played, no it's okay played by it's okay Matthew it's fine it's a lot of things played by Stanley Tucci who is but did you see the, the very important cameo from one of the sort of barbarian Saxon people. No. It was Eddie Hall, Britain's and world's strongest man. Oh, really? Yeah, he was in no, there. I and I was like, thing is, I thought he'd have more, but he was just on there. He did a bit of a roar, and that was it. <laughs> so, right, Jeff, Jeff Capes. I was like, hold on, that's Eddie Hall, world. Uh, and the only reason you recognise him, because it's quite Christmassy to watch the world's strongest man competition. Yes. Stanley Tucci was in one of the other Transformers films. I think it was in the second one. He Dark was. Moon. So he comes back. He's heavily made up to look like he's somebody else. There is some real camp uh, tongue-in-cheekness about the way uh, Stanley Tucci plays Merlin. I'll play you a clip. We're outnumbered, 100 to 1. How are we going to get out of this? You promised a weapon, one of great power. Arthur, you're my king. I will lay down my life for you, but this Merlin is no wizard. He's a worthless drunkard. <laughs> Oh, oh, God, I'm sozzled. One last nip. Magic does exist. It was found long ago inside a crashed alien ship. Conjurer of spirits, master of the dark arts. Is anyone there? It is I, Merlin, the wizard. <laughs> Remember me. No, I kept your secret. I did, just as I promised. I told no one of your existence, no one. But you have to understand, we Britons are in a desperate fight. End of time sort of thing. I mean it, it's happening down there now. As we, I, it's awful. Big personalities just sort of crashing and ugh, bloody. I hate to ask, but we need your help. All right, I am what they say. I'm a liar, I'm a charlatan. I've deceived my whole life, but if I could, for one moment, change this world for the better. I would give up everything, everything. I'd give up drink, money, win, drinking money. I enjoyed Stanley Tucci in this film, I'm gonna say, and, and that whole Merlin role, not necessarily anything else, but that, that kind of bit of storyline, it made absolutely no sense, but no. he was funny. It's a bit like 2012 in the Woody Harrelson thing, okay? Sometimes it's worth, some some people come out so so batshit crazy that it actually is quite enjoy, enjoyable to watch. And I love let's, that. Let's not forget that's what we're here for, Chris. Exactly. We're not here to pan these films. They've no. already been panned. We, the reason we're watching them is because they've been panned. Yeah, yeah, yeah. King Arthur and his the Knights of the Round Table are, are waiting for him to to save the day because he said he would, and he's got he's got to grab a staff from an old ancient transformer that lives in a in a cave. And <laughs> there's a three headed dragon that comes and saves them from the war. 
that that whole beginning scene in the war and the, the battle and the then the the dragon saving them it was it was kind of like an allegory for the whole entire film in the sense that um looking at it you had no fucking clue who was on what side because like initially it seemed obvious when we saw eddie hall he looked barbarian-esque when we see in the battles it was like two lots of knighted people yes yeah. the crap out of each other yeah and then Stanley Tucci rides off, comes and it, but Stanley Tucci's miles away when a dragon starts attacking. How does the dragon know who to kill? <laughs> yeah, yeah, who's good, who's good, and who's bad? Yeah, so it just kind of rolls through the middle of the battlefield, squishing everyone, thinking this will sort it out. It's confusing. Moving on to the next sequence, which is the bit you, you mentioned earlier on, which is that young girl in like a, a dust bowl part of America. These drones, yes. drones are hanging around. You're not allowed to go there. There's this from the old battle of, of the, the previous film where the big battles took place. And it's like a wasteland. ED-209 type things running around. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, I like this character. This character is played by Isabella Mona. She plays Isabella, funnily enough. Um, and she's a scrapper. She's kind of like your Ray out of The Force Awakens. I don't know if you've seen Pacific Rim. So the, the, the latest uh, Pacific Rim film uh, where there's a, a similar oh. kind of theme. There's a, there's a young girl and she's um, scavenging and making her own tech and fixing robots and stuff like that. This kind of has that same feel. Like a, so we could have that we've got the openings or the makings of a good film um, starting in my opinion you've got a young female character who's on her own she's got her family uh, basically were killed in the last film by Decepticons uh, in the explosions and bits so she's displaced we meet these other young kids almost a bit like I don't know uh, dare I say it Stranger Things or um, Stand By Me it's got an element of yeah. four geeky kids not necessarily geeky but m- mishmash team they're all very different and they've uh, hopped over a fence uh, and they're walking around and they get um, caught up in all this gunfire between these the TFA is it these bastards who want to kill all the Transformers because Transformers are the enemies right well, yeah, the, the, again we have a bit of exposition after the initial medieval uh, tutfest uh, we have some expeditions saying that basically these um, Transformers are landing like constantly, like on a daily basis, fighting each other. So then there's the TF Force, which obviously just stands for Transformers, which I thought was weird. Uh, TF Force that has to walk around and kill them. The other female character, the other main lead is, is Laura Haddock, who's an English yes. actor. And she, she's, she plays... From the- in between us, fame. Yeah, yeah. She could, she's very good, actually. I mean, she does, she does it all very... I think she does a really good job. It's the people, the main characters from the previous roles that let it down. We've got to make... Mark, Mark Wahlberg's hair lets it down. Well, he's, he's, so, he's so dumb in this film and other films, in my opinion, that he's been in. Let, let's talk about Anthony Hopkins because he's the big player in this film. He's a big... Oh, that's, that's a jump forward right there. <laughs> well, he does, he does the exposition, doesn't he? It's his voice, yeah. So apparently the role was written exclusively for him with him in mind. He plays Sir Edmund Burton, who's an old um, sir, uh, and he's he knows all about these Transformers. He's got a, an, an old English castle and, and a butler. And yeah, what and he's got pictures of them, like photographs, and he's got oil paintings of Transformers. Mm. The, the voice cast for the uh, Transformers and robots are, is in quite disguise. In disguise. <laughs> Uh, we have John Goodman as the uh, farting <laughs> l- military lorry. Yeah. 
I can't remember his name now. I, was, I started writing down all the Transformers names, but then it then it went really mental at one point, and I stopped. Yeah. Um, Steve Buscemi comes in as Day Trader. Um, he's like a um, little, yeah, he's like a little hermity type. We're well, not little. He's quite big. He's got all the baggage. It's like a um, labyrinthy type of character, am I? Oh Jim yeah, yeah that's, uh, I remember that one. That yeah, yeah. Guy. yeah oh, but the thing is, it's so everything about this one was really Bay-esque. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, that the, the, the John Goodman's robot transformer guy, when he transforms, he kind of farts and accidentally <laughs> off ammunitions and just things explode around him. And it's just like, it's, un- it's un- fucking necessary. Yeah, yeah. Um, the editing is over directed. It's, it's basically two seconds, then cut, two seconds, cut, two seconds, mm-hmm. cut. And you get that until you get the monologues. And then the monologues take over and they go on too long. So you have cut, 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 cut. Then you have this long-winded monologue section where there's a bit of exposition going on and that takes fucking ages. Twelve alien knights who saw in Camelot what the human race could be at its finest. Race of honour. You ruined the moment again. I was making the moment more epic. Just be quiet. What's the matter with you? If I could find his neck, I'd strangle him. And then we go, cut, 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 cut. And you you can't, (laughs) just as you get your head around all this exposition, this stuff, the plot that's being explained to you laboriously. But I was reading in the trivia that the film was like an hour longer before they started cutting it. Jesus Christ. I know, right? So it's, I mean... Yeah, but in there, Matthew... In there, that hour's worth of footage that they've jettisoned, they, they could make a th- three decent, probably, Transformers. <laughs> you've got the Merlin storyline, you've got the girl scavenger storyline, and, yep. and you've got the um, kind of patriotical um, yeah, hoorah kind of fighting... The fighting soldiers, force. Yeah, yeah. Uh, versus the thing, which is pretty much what happened in the last film, if I remember rightly. This film runs long anyway. It's two and a half hours of your life. Yeah. And I think because of the quick, quick, slow, quick, quick, slow, quick, quick, slow mm-hmm. um, behaviour of it, it feels a lot longer. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like I was, um, I was ready for this film to finish when it did. <laughs> What's your what's your underlining opinion? Because you're, I mean, it sounds to me like you didn't like it. (laughs) (laughs) I think that's a fair assumption. the The underlying feeling I have on it was confusion, and and it's it's not just the plot. The plot is in itself confusing, but then so many other elements of this film is also confusing. So the plot is confusing and confused because there are so many, like you say, there's so many bold. So you've got so many different plot lines that I never really fully realized um, characters that are never fully developed situations that are never fully realized. So you have that. Then you have the directorial confusion where you're, like you say, you've got the fast, fast, slow, fast, fast, slow. And then the, the myriad of just, shooting angles and i was reading the, not just the angles but the uh the ratio that they're, they're shot in so yeah you know, 16 12 and then so you have this overarching confusion throughout of all of it and they spend too less time transforming <laughs> they're the transformers and most of this film is just robots walking around i mean it, like like right now think think in your head of yeah. 
five scenes where there was actually transforming taking place. <laughs> There's one. Um, well, I see what you mean. And that's the best bit about it, isn't it? That's the best bit. That's, that's, that's why we watch the cartoons. That's why we love the toys is because it was a fucking car and then it was a fucking robot. We didn't, watch, we didn't watch the cartoon because it was just a robot walking around punching another fucking robot. And no. if it's going to punch the robot, what it should do, it should punch the other robot, then turn into a fucking car, drive around that robot, jump back into being a robot again, punch it again. Does that not happen in this film? Not no, enough. it doesn't. Not enough. I don't think you, you're right. That scene sounds fucking epic, Matthew. <laughs> but I mean, it, all the scenes, are, and um, Helen O'Hara pointed out uh, one of the transform films is it has a beautiful scene where Optimus Prime jumps out of the aircraft um, mm-hmm. as a thing and then lands as a, as a fucking truck. And it's just like, yeah, that's what you want when you're a child. And mm-hmm. this is what this should evoke in you. You ugly mess. Did you forget who I am? I am Optimus Prime. Autobots, attack! I'm looking at my notes now, and I've written weird white lips down, and that's in hmm. reference to Mark Wahlberg. Oh, <laughs> He had really weird white lips. This might be because he's been out in the elements for quite a long time and they're chapped. He looked like he'd just come from a skiing holiday. <laughs> it was odd, so I had to write it down. He's a mixture of everything he's ever done in this film. I like just... Mark Wahlberg. I think he's, he's got a lot of charisma. I think it's a, a comedic actor. He's mm. brilliant in the uh, horrendously underrated um, The Other Guys with Will oh, yeah. Farrell. I think he's brilliant in that. And, it, and that in itself is actually a really good film, I think. And it's, it's not well received, I don't think. So what watch that film. If you're thinking of watching this film, my advice to you is watch the other guys instead. You asked me a question ages ago. I, I think I've answered it. I didn't enjoy it because it, I, I was confused for many, many reasons. We discussed Mark Wahlberg. We've discussed Anthony Hopkins and probably not enough. So... It, in this, hmm. this is a strange leading actor to cast in this kind of film. So he obviously needed the paycheck or he's just having a laugh or he had some spare time on his hands. But he, he absolutely looks like he's having quite a lot of fun in this, in this film, in my opinion. He's I really... expected him to turn evil. I don't know why, but all through this, I expected him to turn evil. I think I'm probably going to come, I'm, I'm going to disagree with you quite a lot, but I think he's really good in this. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, did you not expect him to do a double switch at some point? Yeah, no, you say it, actually. I, that, I mean, that, that as a character, not as, you know, Hopkins. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. like, there, there's the whole end scene, and we can jump about. We're going to jump about. Yeah, yeah. The whole end scene, when he's just stood near Stonehenge, just randomly. Yeah. Like, like, the robots are doing their thing, and he's just stood there, and then randomly, he whips out a machine gun from his cane. <laughs> That's right. And it right. off Megatron's head, and it's... It's weird. It's really weird. And I thought that was going to be the bit where he went, oh, by the way, Megatron and people, I can, I can kill Earth with you. Hooray! Well, they were obviously Michael Bay and the casting people. They wanted somebody of British gravitas. English. So it was either going to be him or it was going to be Patrick Stewart. 
um, you know, either or somebody or sorry, McKellen, some somebody of that stature to make. They could have done Ian McKellen because the character, and I think this is maybe why I thought he was going to turn evil. His character was too similar to the Da Vinci Code Ian McKellen character. Okay. Who does the big old switch? And yeah, I, I think yeah. that's maybe. I think the, right, the reason I thought it's going to switch is because the character was so very similar to that Ian McKellen. Because um, they play the savant role, don't they? Both. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In, yeah. Like, people don't know about what's going on, and they tell them what's going on, and you, you, they become a position of power and trust. And you know, the, the, the easiest thing would be. And I, I guess we should thank Michael Bay for not going down that very easily. Exploited route. So, thanks, Michael Bay. <laughs> thanks. Here's something to be thankful for, I guess. Um, Josh, is it Josh Duchamel? We've seen him Duchamel. in a couple of other things. A bit of old salt and pepper down the sides. Yeah, he's greyed up a bit. It's obviously he's taken his toll. The war. Um, he's been. In, <laughs> uh, a couple, he's been in all of them, hasn't he? This this guy. Um, I don't know. I think he might have missed one. Laura had Laura Haddock we mentioned who does a pretty good turn as the the main like female protagonist who turns out to be the only one who could probably stop stop this. Uh, these these baddies Isabella Mona we mentioned was that young young cast uh, who should have had the film all to herself in my opinion yeah Stanley Tucci and we've got a, a chap called Jared Carmichael who plays uh, Mark Walker's little little cycle Jimmy who's like uh, com- some comedy aspect he's really funny yeah. and really it good was, yeah he was he was all right actually I've um, never seen him in anything else can we mention I know we uh, you know in this uh, hashtag me too world um, yeah. The over-sexualization of any female character in any Transformers film. Yeah. This one, though, Matthew, I must say, it wasn't so bad. Apart from what they did to oh, Laura Haddock. No, I don't think it was as bad. I think she had a lot of cleavage on the go, but it was not as leery and, and sexualized as the other I films. mean, she wasn't bent over a bike. I mean, you know, yeah. it was a, they set a high bar with the previous ones. But, like, yeah. at one point, she, she turns up at the thing, uh, at Anthony Hopkins' mansion, and she's taking a bit of a tumble. So she goes to get changed and comes out in like, I mean, this is Anthony Hopkins' house. He hasn't got anyone else there. It's just him and the weird robot butler. And yeah. she comes out in a perfectly fitting A-line skirt. Yeah. With a white, another perfectly fitting white shirt, <laughs> um, which she decides not to do most of the buttons up in. No, I get, I get, I get it. She's I a just, strong female character in it as well. It's not like you know. Yeah, she doesn't play the full. Yeah, she's the good. visual didn't mesh with the no, no. with what the, what the character was doing and saying and believing. She should have been in a pair of old corduroys and a V neck jumper. That was that would be what Anthony Hopkins would have had spare knocking yeah, about with a very tight with a belt doing it all up. You know, maybe a bit yeah. of something, uh, maybe a scarf or a cravat just to add a bit of flourish. Just to, yeah, jo- uh, we get John uh, Turturro, who's who's another franchise fate. Oh, um, but he doesn't get. A actually, great I, I love him in these films. The crazy sort of. He doesn't get a great deal to do in this one, does he? He's just all down. No. He's, most of his stuff's down the phone. But we get Tony Hale, who plays one of the engineers, and he's a computer scientist or something. And Tony Hale, if you watch um, Feep, the uh, the American sort of POTUS or, or vice president satire. Um, yeah. I like to. I don't know any any sort of fans of British comedy or British advertisements or whatever will might have recognised Tim Downey, uh, who he played a polo player in one of the opening scenes. Yes. He was a, yes. a mustachioed actor who I, I like in everything he does. He was really cool. I wanted to just, just to go, just to carry on with the cast for a second. There was, I mean, there were a lot of scenes in this that I'll, I'll keep talking about because I think 
a lot of it I really liked actually just to sort of put my cards on the table but there was a scene or a couple of scenes with um, the main characters uh, the main female characters goes home to her house and there's mm. uh, her auntie her mother and a grand uh, grandmother and the little bits and pieces between them because they, they use some really good British uh, actresses that we we probably grown up with on our TV or been in not grown up yeah with, yeah great, up, great um, you've got Maggie Steed uh, Sarah Stewart Phoebe Nichols and Rebecca Front Rebecca Front's a massive uh, comedic actress we've got some real pedigree in terms of what she can do on screen in a serious or in a drama or a comedy if you've seen the day-to-day for instance and anything else from british comedy she's she's there um yes. the stuff between them is so dry and i think and really tongue-in-cheek and really good i really enjoyed that if I'm, i've got to say yeah no I'm, I'm with you on that one i think the things the parts of this film that were um out and out funny like written as like like you know not accidentally humorous <laughs> yeah um and nothing, nothing with Mark Wahlberg in the scene. Yeah. We're actually, they actually were quite. Funny. Actually, no, saying no, no, I do them a disservice. The uh, the bit where they turn up in the mansion when, as as I mentioned, she turns up in a perfectly fitting A-line skirt and yeah, um, the, the repertoire between her, Mark, and uh, Annie Hopkins is actually quite enjoyable to watch. Yeah. and it's weird because the bits you're pointing out, the bits I'm pointing out, are bits that don't involve robots or fighting. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We can imagine this sort of film would have worked as if, if that was the if that was the unit, if you like, and there was you know, it was almost came across a bit like um what's that film with Nicolas Cage about treasure, um the treasure hunter or what uh, national National Treasure. It kind of had that feel to it, didn't it? Like they're kind of they're trying to un- they're trying to link the dots or, or, or in terms of uh, something yeah. rest or something it's a bit too major and the, the first uh, national treasure film kind of works in that way in the sense that it, it makes sense there's a very clear path between all these things and i, I think that's what's missing in this film is the, it, the, the clear path what, what also what also works though if, and that it kind of apes on what you're saying there or goes with what you're saying is that that's kind of like nebulous of casting it, it always plays on a lot of the tropes of the, the uh, American and the English people clashing in terms of the culture and that kind of, you know. Yes. Uh, there's a lot of that kind of, hey, British lady, shut shut up, or English lady, you, you know, you're confusing me and stuff like that. And she takes yeah, the hey, dumb American. Yeah, there, there, there's that thing going on, which is not, it's not ha- hammed up in any way. It's not ham-fisted. It's pretty good. And then you've got this other element of, there is which is Cogsworth which is this little four foot robot butler who's played by one of the chaps out of Downton Abbey and there's this great Downton Abbey link oh name drop him because he's brilliant that guy I can't I, he's, I, but there's a story Matthew isn't it the story that one of the writers of the sub like um, cinematographer is a massive Downton Abbey fan and threatened to cast one of the guys and, and that's where it all came from yes I, I, I believe I read that also that uh, Jim Carter maybe. yeah and you instantly recognise him his voice, at least. Now, what did you think of Cogsworth? Because obviously he's, he divided okay. people. Like, like the film, it's, he's a confused character. He's and good, also, though, isn't he? Um, <laughs> good. Yeah, he's a robot with a personality disorder. It's, it's, a, it's, it's an interesting concept. Who, who, I mean, it might, might be worth actually at some point name-checking um, Michael Bay's cinematographer, because I don't actually think I wrote it down anyway, but... It's this smacks of Michael Bay's Bay. It's it's sort of dripping with his palette. It's dripping with his style. It's, and I, I mean, you know, regardless of the content, Jonathan Cena. 
Yeah, right. So he's done everything. He did pain and gain. You can tell it's you know everything from yeah. his, all this stuff. It's dripping yeah. with his palette. It's is is shot for shot. It's like you know it's Bay. And you know if if you didn't have the content and he didn't have the confusion, you know you'd be, you'd make great films. It's just he can't help himself but to <laughs> to do this stuff that is just mind-numbingly hard. And I don't. It's such a shame because, in fact, you know it started off bar the medieval stuff, it started off really well. And there's so many little bits and pieces in this film that I thought, God, I'm actually enjoying this in a way. And, you know, I, I ultimately, you know, it's a mess, but yeah, it's not, it's not, it's not horrendous. I mean, you can sit and watch a 15 to half an hour minute version of it. You could switch it on. And we would talk about this all the time in a podcast. We say, you know, when would you watch this film again? It's like, well, I might, if there was nothing else on or, I just wanted to watch something lavish and I wanted to watch robot. Cause I, you know, we're both sci-fi fans. I mean, we're both yeah. of an age where this is the thing that that's that, that's ignites the passion. As I don't think I'd ever watch this again. Mm. We've, we've talked about like 2012 and, and, and the thing is this has production value out of the kazoo, Yeah, but it's just, I, I, and I, and I, I really struggle to work out why it is so bad because it's not, I mean, it's got a confused plot, but you can label that at many, many really, really successful films. Confused plot is, or pointless plot, is doesn't normally stand in the way of a, of a, of an action fest. It's you know the no. plot normally is just a vehicle to drive you to you know the, the final destination. So it can't be just that. But I don't understand why this clashed so horribly with my sensibilities. <sighs> I, found, I think that's a shame because it's certainly, just no way, it's not a shame, it's your opinion. But <laughs> <laughs> it's a shame I have an it's opinion. It's a shame. But what I'm saying is, what, what I mean is, I hasn't maybe found the audience that it could have done because yeah. there were so many ideas that were just nearly there. They nearly had, they, he nearly had it, sorry, and he, had, he just threw too much at the... At the I want to um, remind you of a particular scene in it. Mm. So the very first time they meet Annie Hopkins on the steps of his stately manor. Yes. And, and, he, and, he, and he just babble bullshit. Hopkins babble bullshit is a, is what I wrote down. Well, Matthew, let's play the clip. I'm awfully sorry about that, but um, you see, he thinks it's still the year 1918 or 1914, something like that. So uh, sad. World War One, and all that stuff. <laughs> I mean, Battle of the Marne, Battle of the Sun, Battle of the Marne, Battle of Passion Day. Trenches and mud and death and gore and all that. It's terribly sad. It's a long way to Tipperary. It's a long way to go. No, but um, it's, um, it's terrible. I mean, it's so sad, you know, but I mean, isn't it? I mean, it's late onset of, um, well, robot dementia. Oh. Well, it's all pretty. Well, I don't know what you're smoking in that pipe, man. What's going on here? Will you drag me to some transformer retirement home? Mm-hmm. Look, somebody better start talking or I'm out of here. Whoa, 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 okay. Um, Bumblebee, we only met when I was a little boy in short pants. I must be that tall. Maybe taller or maybe shorter, I can't remember. But never forget a face. Fee. You know this guy? I don't know you. Hmm. Let's have a look at this thing. Yes. Very interesting. Yes. You keep a secret for so long. Knowing it to be true, and yet deep down inside, you begin to wonder, has my life been wasted? Have you ever felt like that, Mr. Kane? It's just Kate. 
Look, old time, I don't have a ton of patience for riddles right now. Yes, but you want to know, don't you, dude? Why they keep coming here to Earth. Right. So, yes, go, carry on. <laughs> so, so, okay. Right. <laughs> this is this is what my uh, this so he's clearly insane at this yeah. point when you hear that clip right you go fucking hell the guy's <laughs> fucking mental he never appears mental ever again no like literally he finishes that bubble bullshit statement yeah and then <laughs> there is no illusion ever again to him being in any way eccentric well, he gets a little bit eccentric in the car chase scenes and stuff like that when he's in the Raid Rage with Cogsworth. But no, he but no, never he, goes he, full batshit like that. Yeah, no, he's like... <laughs> and that is what really just sums up the whole film. It's just... There's a couple of things I just wanted to point out before we maybe move on. Yeah. <laughs> things that I like. So I kind of was, instead of... I kind of on this film particularly, because I know how critically panned it was and it's universally yes. crap crapped by everybody crapped on um, I, I basically concentrated on writing down things that i enjoyed and i've talked about a lot of it as well so um there was another little scene that i really enjoyed which is the little kind of uh, megatron choosing his squad if you like with the lawyers in the desert because at, at one point megatron colludes with the um the i don't know the the, the transformer busting crew to yeah, find I, I, whatever it was it's confusing I, why did that happen? I, I, can't I don't, know. don't know. But anyway, right. it's a montage of him choosing his, the baddest of his team that are obviously yep. being incarcerated. I'll play the clip as well for that now. It's quite funny if you can make it out what's going on. <laughs> <laughs> Do I know you, human? I want my crew. Give me names! Mohawk. Mohawk. What up, fellas? Man, I want to kill you right now. But I'm gonna kill you later. Definitely gonna kill your mofos later. He's cleared. All right. Dreadbot. Dreadbot in for bank robbery. Aggravated assault, murder, double murder, triple murder, nine dead. Didn't even take the money. No. We're not letting him out. No. I mean, you know, I mean, we can be flexible. If you weren't a GPS tracker, it's fine. Okay, okay, okay. Nitro Zeus. Baby, free at last. Thank Megatron, I'm free at last. Thank you. Gonna miss you, Tim. Thank you for your hospitality, Brad. I know where you live, Enrique. Say hello to your wife for me. But the government requests that he does not leave the county. And we're serious about that. Okay. Okay. And last but not least, Berserker. I'll suck your brains. Absolutely not. Yeah, no, 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 there are limits. Pick again. Onslaught. You need a bigger duel. Uh, let me run that up the flagpole real quick. I just gotta call someone. Great, thank you. Yes, yes. What do you really want, Megatron? What anyone wants, human, to go home. Yeah, that'd be all right with me too. Megatron. Um. 
actually, I just realised what I just said earlier on about me writing down all the good stuff. All I've got left is bad stuff that I actually did write down as well. <laughs> <laughs> the best line in it for me is, God, I'm sozzled, which is what uh, Merlin says or Stanley, Stanley Tucci says. Yeah, and then he follows up, one last nip, and then yeah. downs, <laughs> downs the whole bowl. Um, <laughs> yeah, lose, I mean, basically lose all that sort of patriotism which is synonymous with uh, Michael Bay's films. And you've got what is essentially a comedy. I think there's a lot of comedic elements to this, which would have gone, which would have been enjoyable for all the family, which is kind of what a Transformers film should be. This this film, I think if if it sort of cut off three or four of the sort of strands that it had, if it just decided that, no, we're not going to do them at all. um, And just cut off three or four of the strands that it had and just focused on it and maybe went with the comedy side a little bit more. Cause like you say, the two or three scenes of sort of comedic worth in them are good. They're funny. They're, they they yeah. actually resonate. Do that, lose some of the confusion. And I think underneath all of this bullshit, and there's actually a half decent film here. That you can make a, you can make a film out of the footage, but also I think what, what doesn't help as well is the, 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 the there are no F bombs in the film, but there's a lot of shits. There are so many of shits. Yeah. I mean, Michael Bay loves to shit. He loves to shit. I, I mean, I'm, I wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a, like, um, it wouldn't be a joke to sort of say that pretty much in every bit of dialogue, there's a shit dropped. And for me, it's like, <laughs> why, why would you drop a shit here? And every part, every character says drops a shit bomb. I think Even it's because Cogsworth. you can do a 12 and shit as much as you want. But why, why make it a 12? Just make it a fucking PG and then, and make it like, you know, have dark elements to it if you want to, but just make it a pure, fun family film with Transformers. And that, I think, is what Bumblebee has has done. And that's just goes to show yes. with a fresh pair of eyes. And I said this from the very beginning. When I first saw 2000, in 2007, when the first film came out and I enjoyed it, thought it was, I thought, yeah, it's pitched quite high in terms of the age group and everything. The ones that followed, I just thought, They've missed a trick here. Get a director yeah. in. Get a director in who who's good at making kids' films. And it's John Favreau uh, was the one that immediately sprung to mind because I watched a film a few years beforehand, which is uh, Safura or something, which is like the Jumanji uh, yep. spin spin off, which has got some great action and and an elf. I mean, come on. <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah. But he knows his way around the camera. He's great. And, I mean, he's just one that came to my mind. And he did Iron Man. And he did that in a way that wasn't, you know, gratuitous. Um, gratuitous. Say the word for me. Gratuitous. Gratuitous. <laughs> Thank you. Um, and, yeah, anyway, if they'd, have, if they'd gone with that kind of, if they pitched it lower and, and Hasbro had given the franchise to someone who gave a shit about what it was they were making, then, and I, I, okay, I'm not saying that Michael Bay... But do you not think that Michael Bay got maybe burnt by the George Lucas fire in the sense that, like, George Lucas... Lucas? George, George Lucas took a child's film in Star mm. Wars, which, like, we can't ignore the fact we are 40-year-old men that... <laughs> watch children's films and enjoy them thoroughly and i bet because you've got two boys and i bet they like the prequels to be honest with you they don't because they don't like star wars which is cutting me to the core oh, God. <laughs> yeah but that's probably because the prequels are the only ones they can watch without going oh fuck it's a really old film and then yeah good. yeah yeah but they don't, i mean don't get me wrong they enjoy it to an extent but it's not like they're Mar- marvel is a bit more more than a bit yeah, more that's because it's quality. But, no, I know um, what you mean. I know what you mean. Yeah. So they, 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 they he took it and, it, and then he kind of made this weird hybrid, which 
children could thoroughly enjoy, I imagine. I imagine like the Phantom Menace is probably a, a great deal of fun for a, a child, like literally a child. <laughs> um, yes. Uh, you know, but these days we expect more from our films. We expect them, like, when I go to see a CGI film these days, like a, the latest Disney Pixar, Incredibles 2, uh, Wreck-It Ralph, Breaks the Internet, I expect something from me in there. Yes. I, you know, I, I, you know, the kids obviously are there, it's primarily for them, but I expect there to be enough production value and stuff in it for me. Yeah. And, and, and that's what Pixar has done. It's made us not look at child's entertainment and see it only for the kids, something that is endured by parents and made it enjoyable by parents. And then everyone else now, has followed suit. It's not just Pixar. You've yeah. got Illumination and uh, the other sort of major. Yeah, yeah. but I think they, they kicked it off with Toy Story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So then you get like uh, Michael Baker along it and then he's like, I'm, I'm not going to make this as a child's film because it it's going to fail. And, mm sort of tries to push it into the, and, and, you know, Chris Nolan effect of darkening up everything. Um, it can't be ignored. So then you end up with these kind and tw- of twilight as well. would be worth mentioning. Yeah. You, you get these tween films, Deadpool and Logan, uh, yeah. kind of proved that there are, there is a market for adult films, films targeted, for adults that have science fiction fantasy elements, what we need Game to prove again, Game of Thrones, yeah. What we need to prove again is that there is a market for really good kids' films mm-hmm. that aren't CGI cartoons that, well, that, um, that we can watch. That's a PG or Universal, that's Transformers. Transformers is absolutely ripe for being a universal film that we can all watch without well, any deal. Helen O'Hara mentioned it again with, when we talked about Bumblebee with the interview with her a few episodes ago is that she mentioned it, that this Bumblebee in, incarnation of uh, the, the new incarnation of the, of the franchise seems mm. to be, you know, going back to that kind of Amblin, uh, you know, E.T., uh, 80s, I say 80s because it's just so big at the moment, but that kind of, you know, that, that period of time where they, we did make films for, for kids uh, yeah. that had, you know, that had that element of nostalgia, which is what we all want. We we are, like you say, yeah, we're both forty in our forties. But Stranger you know, Things is kind of aped on that more than anything. They, I mean, Stranger Things more than anything else I've seen has really grabbed that um, Amblin vibe. Mm. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah, yeah, and it just kind of twisted it with a dark edge. I mean, that's clearly not child's entertainment at all. But it's it's pitched us. 40-year-olds that watched E.T., Goonies, The Explorers, that watched all those films growing up. Those, those beautiful children's films where they're so, they're so perfectly innocently pure and there's, there's nothing horrible, there's nothing dark, there's nothing nasty in them. It has that, but then Stranger Things got that and then put the nasty in it. <laughs> yeah, so as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, Matthew, this now is the interview with James King. Coming up right now. Yay! Hi, it's Chris here from the Movie Bunker podcast. Today I'm delighted to be joined by James King, one of the UK's leading film journalists. So, welcome to the bunker, James. <laughs> Hello. No one's <laughs> ever said welcome to the bunker before. That's uh, quite a novelty. Good to see you. I just wanted to start it off by asking you what, where your love of film began and your earliest sort of film memories are. Yeah, um, I think my early film memories are fairly standard, to be honest. You know, I would go to the cinema 
with my parents when I was very young and then with my mates when I was sort of 10, 11 years old. But it certainly wasn't obsessive. It was just the same as lots of other people I was at school with and friends with. You know, it was that that kind of thing. I think when it became more passionate and more, more of an obsession was when I was about 15 years old. And actually, I think when you're that age, you're looking for direction. You're looking for something to be fascinated by and to be interested in because you're thinking about your future, your, your future career. I found films via a movie actually called uh, Play It Again Sam which is a Woody Allen film from the early 70s based on stage play mm-hmm. and uh, I was I was watching it late one night it was on Channel 4 uh, I think my parents were away for the weekend so I was just kind of flicking around staying up late you know past my bedtime in this film he plays a film critic a film journalist and, and it's called Play It Again Sam because he's obsessed by Humphrey Bogart and has yeah. these visions of Humphrey Bogart and I just saw that and I and I saw him you know, watching movies, writing about movies, being obsessed with movies. And I just thought, you know what? I mean, I, I quite fancy giving that a try. It seemed to really appeal to me. And I think also because no one else I knew was was kind of like that. It wasn't like I was mates with a load of film obsessives. They were more into other stuff. So it seemed like a unique thing for me to latch onto. That summer, because this was early summer, that summer, I just really remember just recording everything I could off the TV, renting loads of movies, going to the cinema and just really trying it out for size, I guess. And it worked. From that summer onwards, my love of films went from just casual which is what it had been, being absolutely obsessed with them. Quite an obsessive hobby to start with, manifesting itself into a professional career yeah, later on. Yeah, I mean, I think you have to be <laughs> slightly obsessed with them if you're going to do this job, because it's just, it, it is non-stop. And, you know, of course, there are new films out every week. If you're doing the kind of film journalism where you have to review the new films all the time rather than doing more, you know, historical stuff, yeah. then it, it is it is constant. You can be into a film one week and then the next week you have to move on to the next five, six, seven films that are out. So yeah. it's it's uh, I think you do have to have this ability to deal with the constant <laughs> flow of movies. They don't yeah. take a break. You know, yeah, there's yeah. not a week where everyone just goes now and won't release it. <laughs> Uh, it, it is constant, so obsession is important. So for our listeners that may not be familiar with you and, and the work that you've done over the years, can you just talk us through your kind of CV, if you like? Yeah, well, after that summer that, that I decided what I wanted to do, I then, a few years later, went to university, long studies at university. Whilst I was at university, this was at Warwick in, in the Midlands in the UK, um, I was also doing a lot of radio as well. They had a very good student radio station. So really my time, my three years there, was spent between the radio station and the film studies lecture halls and watching movies, which now now I look back at it, I just think, my God, that was the greatest three years of my life. just wallowing in your kind of twin passions. So after that, I knew really that it would it would have to be one of those two things that I wanted to pursue, either going into radio or going into the film industry. I, I knew that, that combining the two would be quite niche and there weren't really many opportunities to do that. However, one of those opportunities was at Radio 1, you know, the, the, which was then the biggest radio station in the country because it was aimed at... at uh, teenage and students it had a lot of film coverage Mark Kermode was doing the film coverage at the time so although I the first time I applied for a job there it actually wasn't with him it was working on the more, more the music side after mm. a few months at Radio 1 I then got a job with Mark who was presenting the film show on Radio 1 at the time I mean <laughs> when people ask me for advice now uh, I kind of look back on how I did it and I just think I really put all my eggs in one basket and <laughs> took quite yeah. a risk because yeah. I wanted to talk about films on the radio, and then really that's that's really quite a narrow um, 
focus, but it paid off and um, worked with Mark for several years before he left and, and went on to bigger and better things. And then I took over as the sole film person on Radio 1, presenting programmes, talking about movies, reviewing movies, and did that for, I think, about 10 years. You've sort of dabbled freelance in sort of writing reviews for publications as well as yeah. doing ITV and things like that as well. Is that absolutely. right? Yeah, absolutely. When I started at the BBC um, on, on the radio, it was uh, sort of a... Um, you know, under a contract and a staff member. But mm. after a while, I found that quite restrictive and, and realized that, that what I wanted to do was to do lots of different things. You know, mm. Radio 1 could be the, the main focus, if you like. But yet, like you said, stuff on TV channels, writing for people. So for most of my career, I have been freelance, mm. which is is a little bit, it's a little bit intimidating at first. If you're used to the contract, if you're used to the paycheck every month, if you're used to having a certain amount of time to be on holiday every year, being freelance, yeah. does actually feel, it's freeing, um, as the name would suggest, but it's also quite scary sometimes. But you kind of established yourself with quite a, a mainstream platform with Radio 1, so you were, would have been at the time one of the one of the biggest critics on the yeah. circuit, am I right? Yeah, oh absolutely, yeah. I mean, the, the, the doors that open to you yeah. by working there are amazing. So even though I was a freelancer and had yeah. the, the, the risks that you have being a freelancer, I was lucky because you had such a platform being on the radio every week and talking mm. to X million people that other jobs would come about because yeah. of that. Some of the jobs were, were TV and things that people would have seen. Some of them are, are things behind the scenes if you like, that no one really ever knows about. Yeah. Corporate, that, corporate gigs, that kind of thing. Certainly the radio on platform was an amazing thing to have and you got lots of work because of that role. How much influence do you think you have by your peers and other other movie journalists and film critics out there? Um, it's quite interesting because now I uh, now I'm much more ad hoc, I suppose, in the things that I do. That hopefully that's going to change next year. There are some some projects next year that that will mean a bit more consistency. But the last couple mm. of years I've been quite sporadic in where I've turned up and been doing book stuff as well so it's less mm. about broadcast but i do speak to people who mm. uh, are now kind of late 20s maybe and who remember me from when i was on radio one and uh, say oh yeah i grew up listening to you and joe wiley or i remember when you reviewed this film well, better than i remember i don't remember <laughs> a lot of it and i can kind of imagine that because i you know i remember when i was a teenager listening to the radio i can remember specific things that let's say Simon Mayo said on Radio 1 that he yeah. wouldn't remember because he was doing it all the time but they mm -hmm. stuck in my head and I, I'm getting that back now from people who can sort of quote things back at me that I said 15 years ago about a movie that I've completely forgotten about yeah it's quite pleasing to for, for people to have to have actually listened to what you were saying and to be influenced yeah, yeah. by it and to have been part of people's childhood I suppose part of people's adolescence when they were uh, listening to you growing up. What do you think the future of film criticism is? There are thousands, literally, of podcasts that do it and, and blogs and things like that. And does yeah. that, does it worry you or is it just something that you know is a byproduct of the internet and free speech? And well, all that? It's, it's certainly changed the job. I get people asking me for advice about being a film journalist now and I will you know, do my best to help anybody. But mm -hmm. you have to be realistic <laughs> and say there's not a lot of money in it now because yeah. so many people are doing it free 
people who grew up writing for free, writing their own blogs or doing their podcasts for nothing. And so if they actually get to a, a sort of semi-professional status or or um, start writing for a more professional website, you know, they will mm. carry on doing it for free. Mm. And I can understand why people do that. I'd have done it when I was that age, but yeah. it's not that helpful for the industry. Certainly there's a new magazine out called Film Stories that you know has, has said, we are going to pay people. We're going to make a stand. Journalists deserve to be paid for what they mm. write which is great. It's kind of old-fashioned now, but I'm, I, I think I'm very happy that it's old-fashioned, that someone has actually gone back and said, you know what, enough of this free stuff. Mm. We're actually going to pay you. But that's a consequence of the ease of podcasting and the ease of blogging and all those things. It's brilliant because you can practice. There's so much room to practice now if you want yes. to be a film journalist. But ultimately, is it going to put food on your table? Uh, probably not. I mean, eventually you might get there and you get sponsors and all these kind of things. M more film journalism doesn't necessarily mean more money. In fact, it means completely the opposite. I think there's, mm. there's less money out there now than there was. What is obvious, though, is that is the quality of, of, the, of the review. And I think uh, there are lots of um, independent ones that are that are fine, but they just don't have the the pedigree and they don't have the, the language just isn't the same. And I think when you, yeah. when you want to listen to a decent film review, you know, you want to go to yourself and you want to go to the Kerr modes and to the Helena yeah. Harms and the Chris Hewitts of the world, because you can hear the, that's just the experience and the wealth of knowledge that they have about the subject, as opposed to yeah. some chap like me in, in their bedroom uh, or, or in the lounge <laughs> in this case, <laughs> trying to fumble through a review with his brother-in-law, which is, well, I think experience is a really interesting thing because when I started out, I started at a very high profile outlet in Radio 1 with very little experience. My experience mm. was all from university. I hadn't worked my way through other radio stations or worked my way through Empire Magazine. And mm. I cringe to think of how I must have sounded when I started out because I was 22 years old and mm. never done it before. And all of a sudden I was on the, this huge radio station. And I really only felt comfortable, I think, in that role in the couple of years, the last couple of years I was there, a couple of years before I left, because I'd had seven, eight years of it. I felt like I actually knew more than a lot of other people just because I'd seen more than a lot of other people. And, mm. you know, I had the, the stories and the anecdotes and the, and the experience to back up my opinions. But that takes a while to get to that stage. Uh, mm. I certainly feel a lot more comfortable as a critic now than I, than I ever did when I started out, just because I've been doing it for 20 years. And I think the second thing that's interesting about uh, the podcasts and the blogs that you mentioned, and this is whenever people send me examples of what they do, this is the one I, I always say it. I don't think there's ever been a, an example where it, this hasn't been um, true. They're always too much, too long, too wordy. And it's because there aren't editors out there. If you're writing your own blog or doing your own podcast, it's unlikely mm. that there's an exterior person who actually looks over what you've written or listens into what you've said and, and suggests cuts or suggests edits. Um, yes. And that's what happens in real life. You know, mm. in, in professional life, you do have an editor or sub-editor who comes in and tweaks things and takes things out and makes it shorter. Uh, for, uh, normally for, for good, for good mm. reasons. Um, and I think that, that so many blogs are brilliantly written and people really know their subjects. And I'm so, in such admiration of these people. But you do just need to think of brevity a little bit and just don't waffle quite so much and cut it down a bit because, you know, if you write for Empire magazine, then there just aren't, there isn't the space for that many words. Uh, a short film review is sometimes a lot more difficult to do than a long one. You know, journalism has always existed on having other people to help you, but, mm. but you know, they're now increasingly, I think, those kind of roles are going. 
you're just sort of asked to do it all yourself. But but showing it to someone else and just getting them to to give their opinion and chop bits out and, and bring it down a little bit, I think is very useful. Bringing it back to movies that you've seen in your professional career, bearing in mind what we do in the bunker is put ourselves through the pain but <laughs> of watching these critical stinkers. I suspect you could, you've got plenty of examples of um, some major flops and turkeys, but are there any that really stick out to you that, that, that have been a painful watch and a painful review? Yeah, I, th- I'm glad this fad is over now, although it's not entirely over, but but the, the, it was at its most successful maybe 10 years ago. And that was the sort of, I guess they were spoof films, like disaster movie, epic movie, scary movie, which was really the originator of it, which was spoofing screen. Uh, yes, yes. Um, and there seemed to be several of them. Date movie, I think, was another one. The same writers and directors involved in a lot of them. I mean, some were better than others. And I think Scary Movie 4 or 5 or however many they did, I think not bad compared mm. to, to, you know, uh, Date Movie or something like that. But, mm. but essentially all they did was just, uh, it, they weren't really jokes as much as just references to recent yeah. films that had come out. Um, and yeah. they weren't even references to, to other date films or other scary films. They were just references. They were, there's someone looking like Britney Spears walking past in the background, and that's meant to be a joke. <laughs> you think that's yeah, not a yeah, joke. Yeah, yeah. That's just you referencing something. Um, and I did find those very painful. There was a period of time when they, they were popular and they were plentiful. And I, I don't think that they're the kind of thing I would watch again and go, you know what? Actually, this is genuinely a masterpiece, and I missed it the first time around. I think they would still stink today if I watched them. I think definitely they were uh, a staple of some of the studios, weren't they, uh, to try and capture some sort of American Pie type audience. Yeah. That... Oh yeah, they, they had a, you know a gross out elements and stuff. Yeah. And, 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 and you know um, nudity and all that kind of stuff. Well, no problem with that at all. But they just had no story, um, and they just they it, it was it looked like everything was so hurried that well because yeah. it was because they yeah. were trying to capture the moment and capture the zeitgeist by referencing recent things yeah. but there was no real point to them and i think what's interesting is that they haven't really lasted they were very popular at the time i just mm. don't know of anybody now who's who's tried to rediscover those films or champion those films and say you know what 10 years later actually they're great um so have you ever had to like uh, when you've done an a review and you may have an interview or a, a, like a carpet or a premiere type situation where you've had to then interview the guests or sorry the actors or, or the or the director after you've seen it knowing that it's potentially going to be a, a big major disaster or a flop or a turkey um oh yeah definitely and i think everybody knows um <laughs> that they they realize you know that big I mean I remember interviewing John Travolta right who's been in a number of bad films of late yeah uh, but this was Battlefield Earth so this was a long time ago one of my early interviews actually but mm. Battlefield Earth was a legendary flop a legendary turkey at the time which was mm. a sci-fi movie loosely based I think on, on uh, Scientology and but he came over to promote it you know it was a passion project for him so I had to go in there and interview him but but we were briefed a little bit beforehand about where to go with this interview and perhaps so, so we were sort of gently nudged by by the uh, film company to to ask certain things and to avoid other things um which is fine you know it's, yeah. it's john travolta that in itself is is enough and you can say stuff outside of the interview if you want to slate the movie um you don't have to do it to his face but yeah i mean it, not every film is great you know that as much as i do you're always going to have to meet people whose film is average sometimes you have to meet people whose film is terrible but 
yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of an optimist, I think, as a film reviewer, and, and like to think that even a bad film, a lot of people will have put hours of hard work into it, and um, you know, maybe there's there's something you can pick up on. Say you have a 15 minute interview with someone, mm. the film's not great, but there must be something that you can talk about and celebrate about that movie. Recently, we've done films like 2012, and we've did yeah. we did Gods of Egypt, amongst and <laughs> yeah, um, wow, Jack and Jill, and, and things like that. Yeah. So we're working our way through, maybe trying to find some obscure critically panned films. But the the goal is to find some good stuff to talk about. And I think with yeah. 2012, for instance. I mean, it's uh, it's quite a bad one, but Woody Harrelson is a pleasure to watch on screen, yep. I think, in his crazy ways. I think we were struggling with uh, Gods of Egypt, and I'll bring it up because I, when, when before I was going to speak to you today, I had a look at some of your reviews online to see if I could find something that we could find some common ground on, and you reviewed that for yeah. Five Live. I do remember, yeah. I think it's <laughs> a classic, isn't it? Gods of it, Egypt, I, re- I mean, it is ridiculous, and uh, Jeffrey yes. Rush is in that, isn't he? He is indeed, yes. Yes, that, yeah. I think the Jeffrey Rush moment is special. I think hmm. that anything with Jerry Butler, in anything like that with Jerry yeah. Butler, sort of a 300 ripoff, there's going to be something entertaining about it. It, it is an absolute turkey, but I do think that it's, it has a, a camp quality that perhaps um, it, it is something to, to cling on to, some, something to well, sort of celebrate in a weird way. If anything, it's what we class as being you know, the, the, drunk, the drunk movie that you, yeah. would, you would find yourself watching because it's like the computer game cutscenes, if you like, and the special effects quality. Quality. And I mean, now knowing a little bit more of the backstory of that film and how the criticism that it received and, and the director's response to that criticism was was quite well publicised. But also, as you say, Jerry Butler, who seems to be coming up a lot in our podcast. <laughs> yeah. well, I think, I think this, the thing about Jerry Butler is I remember interviewing him for, for something terrible. I can't remember what it was. But um, in, in a way, you know, I, uh, I think he knows what's going on. Um, mm. I don't think he cares because he's earning a living. And yeah. the interesting thing about him is that he wasn't famous aged 18. It was a little bit later in life, in, mm. in, probably in his 30s when he really became famous. And so he'd known unemployment as an actor. He'd known mm. being a struggling actor. And so now he's in this position where he's getting paid a lot of money to make films. Mm. He's saying, why the hell not? Someone's got to take this lead role. Yeah. It might as well be me. <laughs> Yeah, I think so. And, um, I, you know, in a way you have to respect that because there are so many actors who are out of work. Um, he's just saying, I had that time when I was struggling. Now I'm just going to make hay while the sun shines. Yeah, and yeah. Uh, if not everything is a masterpiece, then, you know, I can at least relax in my house in Beverly Hills and, and not get too stressed out about it. Yeah. Uh, that's, you know, I wouldn't want every actor to be like that. But I think that there is an awareness with him. Um, that that uh, makes me a little bit fond of him. How can we explain Al Pacino's <laughs> yeah. role in Jack and Jill? What was I that all about? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I, don't, I really don't know. Um, and I had the pleasure of interviewing Al Pacino actually for for the BBC. And he he came into the room, and I have, listen. I have utmost respect for Al Pacino. I mean, some of the greatest movie performances of all time. But this this man shuffled into the room and. At first, I would not have recognised him. I, I mm. thought it was just like a homeless guy from outside <laughs> or something. I mean, he did he did not look uh, he did not look kind of groomed. Let's say he looked like he just yeah. out of bed. Uh, yeah. But he was lovely, and he gave good answers. How do I explain his choices? I, I I I don't know. I mean, he he has passions. He's a big Shakespearean fan, and he has uh, you know stage projects and all these kind of things. And maybe just to get the funding for those. 
he will do to bad films as well. I know that yeah. that is a, a fairly common thing. And again, I think as, as, as movie fans like us, we want there to be a kind of purity about actors that they, they are so um, moral that they'll only do certain things, but they want to get movies off the ground as well. You know, they yeah. want to get passion projects off the ground and sometimes they have to pay for that themselves. So yeah. if that means taking a role in an Adam Sandler movie to get a bit of cash, then they'll do that. I guess ultimately no one sets out to, to make a turkey either. I mean, the amount of effort and work that goes into even getting a film made is astonishing. And, and it's a miracle how any films get made these days. Yeah, it really is. And I think that celebrating something uh, getting made is important. It might not be the greatest work of art, but I don't have a problem with average films. I, I think, mm. I think in, in terms of bad films, the ones I have a problem with, the ones that think they're amazing or claim to be something amazing or have ideas above their station mm. uh, where you just think, look, just admit you're terrible. <laughs> and then I think we'd all, we'd all feel a lot happier and we'd all um, have less of an issue. Uh, you know, if you're looking at something like The Meg, which came out this summer, you know, that's, that's a film that is aware of its own stupidity. Yeah, um, yeah. That, that immediately um, takes away a lot of the pressure, but it's, it's films, and I think 2012 might be to blame for this, actually. Mm. Um, Roland Emmerich does have this slightly, but I, I, I'm not sure if the tongue is in cheek enough. Um, I, I do feel that he yeah, uh, yeah. Ha- has thought in his time, not all of his films, but has thought in his time that he is making something genuinely amazing. And I think if people just admitted to it being a bit cheesy, then we'd all be a lot, uh, a lot more mellow about it. What's been your your most sort of disappointing film of 2018? That's a good question. Disappointing film. I mean, ge- I'll speak generally. I think for me, I'm getting a little bit bored with comic book movies. And that's not to say that they're terrible because you look at Black Panther and it's great and, you know, Infinity War had some amazing moments and surprises mm. in it. But it's, for me, it's it's less about individual ones and more just about the the, the number of them. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. And it's it, it just feels like they're not that special anymore because mm. there are so many in a way i listen marvel are a, a part of disney and they're a huge industry and they've got to make money and dc have their hookup with warners again we've got to make money so you can understand it from an industry point of view from a business point of view why they're doing it but mm. as a film fan it's like perhaps less is more sometimes mm. and i what i feel needs to happen is a bit of a break so I can build up some anticipation again and build up some excitement again which I remember from years ago when there hadn't been comic book movies and all of a sudden they were coming back again and you had the original X-Men the original Spider-Man Spider-Man films all that kind of stuff mm. it was hugely exciting because mm. you'd missed them I don't miss them anymore because there's one yeah. out there like every month I think that there's, there's so little expectation now not, not, not expectation about the movie particularly but just you know that there's always going to be another one coming along and it, in a way that that's, that's they're a victim of their own success because there's only lots of them coming along because they've been hugely successful. If if three or four of them were flops, then Hollywood would move on to something else. One of our first uh, episodes of our podcast was on Tank Girl, and uh, I remember I remember when that came out in, in the nineties or nineteen ninety, I think it was, and really the the anticipation about a comic book film coming onto the screen after I think Blade had maybe come before it, we'd had Spawn and things like that. So that yeah. the genre on film was so new and, you know, no one had been able to do this sort of thing justice. So then, the floodgates have opened since, I guess, those early films, as you've referenced. So, you know, Spider, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man and, yeah. and you know, the Batmans. Um, yeah. And it's been a snowball effect. And as you say, yeah, we get, phase one phase two and phase three and then we <laughs> what we're going to do now is we're going to have them all probably 
I don't know what's going to happen in the in the next Infinity War. Well, I tell you what, film, but... what I really liked about about Into the Spider Verse, the new Spider Man movie, and mm. we've had a lot of Spider Man movies and, and a yeah. lot of actors playing Spider Man just over the last fifteen years. Uh, but what I really liked about it, and why I think for me it's probably my favourite superhero movie of this year, um, is because it was an animation, and so immediately mm. that makes it different to the others, mm. um, and they can do all kinds of weird stuff because it is an animation that they wouldn't be able to do if it's live action. And all of a sudden, I'm sat there right at the end of the year, because I only saw this last week. Um, this is, what, the fourth, fifth big big um, superhero movie of the year. And mm. I'm thinking, wow, it, they've breathed new life into it. And I wouldn't mind seeing more of those that are animated. Uh, but I think the other ones, as well, I mean, Black Panther I really enjoyed, but and Black Panther had, was different because, you know, it had, a, it had an urban edge to it, it had a black edge to it that, that had been crucially missing from a lot of a lot of uh, superhero movies but ultimately so many of the origin stories are quite similar yeah yeah, um, yeah. Um, i mean it goes back to lord of the rings and star wars and all these kind of things so just that 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 one person who discovers that they are the savior of or you know a superhero in some way just to see spider verse do something different with the way that it was told that was really exciting and i want more of that i think because i just feel i've i've seen too many live action comic book movies that are following a similar path the bad ones especially the warner brothers uh, <coughs> side of things or the sony ones so so you've got venom recently and aquaman's yeah. just come out and it's had very mixed reviews although they seem to do incredibly well still yeah and if if they do well they'll make more i mean it's, yeah. it's the same with suicide squad you know i mean i i listen if you're a suicide squad fan fan of that movie fine but i, ju- I i've never met anyone it's you just think who actually wants the second suicide squad movie i think they're going to recast most of the characters anyway apart from right, okay. uh, margot robbie so it just yeah, i don't see how thing, yeah who deserves maybe something uh, some sort of credit for that role but there is there is something a little bit depressing about that and i know that um mark kermode my friend and who you mentioned already um mm. has a similar thing with the pirates of the caribbean movies and sort of mm. <laughs> it was quite infamous really for slating those when they're at their peak uh, mm. because there's this feeling that that no one really apart from maybe the first parts of the caribbean movie but the other ones no one really loves them no but everyone goes to see them and as long as that happens they'll keep making more oh god it's so nice when you have a film <laughs> like i mean i was tweeting today about the greatest showman now i don't hugely love that film but what i like about it is that it was a surprise something that people have become really passionate about and latched onto and it's had legs at the box office and the mm. soundtrack is still selling well and it's just it's just some a novelty really and to see something new like that happen when so much of the movies so many of the big movies that come out are so planned and predictable mm. and mm. you know they know what they're going to make before the, the day of release so to have a, a shock like that and a surprise like that i think is really invigorating the, the greatest showman has had all the sort of hallmarks for film that inf- i should detest and, and avoid with all my heart but i was i was sucker punched into def- into defeat and submission with that film i went to see it with yeah. my wife and my sons have seen it and um and we've got the soundtrack. I, I looked at my Spotify um, review of the year uh, oh, yeah. last week, and it said the top 10 tracks were all from the greatest <laughs> showmas. And there was a big picture of Hugh Jackman there um, saying it was the most listened to artist. I was thinking, yeah. well, yeah, that's, that's not, that's quite a painful thing to see, but ultimately those songs are really good. And I, actually... I think it's, I think it's great for, for, for the industry. It's been a film yeah. industry and music industry. I remember yeah. a year ago when that film was first being shown, cause it came out, I think boxing day last year. So yeah. about a year ago, um, 
end of December 2017, it was being shown to critics. And, you know, we all came out and we went, oh, it's all right, but it seems a bit antiquated and I don't really know who's going to go and see it. And mm. some of the plot lines are a bit creaky and wonky. And yeah. then, you know, <laughs> 12 months later, and it's a phenomenon. And yeah. that's brilliant. I don't mind being proven wrong. I think that's a, br a brilliant thing to happen. Uh, we yeah. all knew Infinity War was going to be huge. We all knew that Mamma Mia 2 was going to be huge. But mm. Greatest Showman, that's a surprise. You must be thinking about a, a sequel to that film. How <laughs> just to try and capitalise on that? I mean, yeah. I <laughs> well, I mean, if there's not a direct sequel, then there'll certainly be films that are very similar to it, where they just try and copy the blueprint and, and uh, hope hope that lightning is going to strike twice. We're in for a lot of musicals over the next few years now. I was just going to talk about your your book as well that you've released yeah. recently. Um, so uh, it's Fast Times and Excellent Adventures: uh, yeah. The Surprising History of the '80s Teen Movie. Yes, that's correct. So, so where did the idea come from for this? I think the idea started about 20 years ago. <laughs> um, well, I mean, I wrote about things like that when I was at university, actually. I did my dissertation on um, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I, actually, I did my MA, Film Studies on Ferris Bueller's Day Off, so I've been writing about it for a long time. But I've, I've been, I've, I think I've been avoiding it as a book because when something, when a genre is, is your passion, you know that it will take over if you write it as a book. And, you know, that's, that's great. A lot of people do that. But I've been a bit reticent. I've been a bit nervous. And then mm. my um, agent suggested it, said, look, just face up to your demons and do it. And that's all I needed. And I did. And yes, it did take over my life. And the book is very long and perhaps longer than a lot of people <laughs> expected it to be. And it's, it goes deeper than I expected it to go. But at the same time, I had a blast doing it. So um, it really is a passion project. Did you go back and rewatch a lot of the films, obviously, to, to research and write about them? Was there any that didn't age well or didn't stand up to your memories or, or expectations of what they were? In a lot of them, there are um, characters, ethnic minority characters who have not aged well. And they are surprisingly, surprisingly racist in, mm, <laughs> in parts, yeah. you know, when, even in something like Ferris Bueller, there are some moments where you wince, um, yeah. 16 Candles, definitely, uh, Revenge of the Nerds, definitely. There are also moments that are meant to be sort of funny sex jokes that you mm. wince at now mm. um, in, in the, those same films that I've just mentioned. So n not all of the comedy is aged well. I think you have to view them as products of the era. Yeah. And none of those jokes take over the film. They're just little moments. There's still 99% a good film, but there are 1% awkward bits that seem very antiquated now. Um, so I, I was a little bit surprised by those and, and because at the time, you know, you just, particularly think about it it was important to highlight those and i think definitely we're in an era now where everyone is revisiting these things and, and you know morley ringwald actually about the, i think it was about the week that the book came out um had written a piece for a magazine in america all about how she's now uncomfortable with some of the things that john hughes did in his films and if molly ringwald is saying that who is the queen of his team movies, yeah, yeah. then you know that it's it's actually a real issue and so when i did the um american version of the book which is coming out uh, in march 2019 um i d wrote a new introduction because i needed to it to, to you know reference that molly ringwald article and reference some other things that had really come up in the last six months a year or so but i do think it's important to acknowledge the bad things acknowledge the things that haven't aged well acknowledge the questionable moments but not to write off the film entirely there's still some great things in those films and john hughes movies john hughes was a troubled character 
And mm. I spoke to people who weren't entirely complimentary of him, even though John Hughes to team movie fans is this god. Yeah. But, you know, he wasn't. He was a normal bloke and he had problems and he had issues and he certainly wasn't the easiest person to work with. So you have to acknowledge that and you have to acknowledge that he made some questionable decisions. But yeah. at the heart of a lot of these team movies, like Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller, there is just a passion and a heart and an understanding that no other team movies of that era had. So that's why they've lasted. That's why they're still held up today. Last thing from uh, you, James, if you could, we could put you on the spot for one second. Could you think of a film that we could, we could review for a future episode? A real, oh, yeah. a real turkey in your, in your mind? Yes, well, I think that, that there's a handful of them. You could choose which one, but I would say the straight-to-DVD American Pie sequels. Um, okay. I'm a, I'm a big fan of, of the cinema American Pie movies, certainly the first three, although they did tail off in quality a bit. I think that actually at their heart, there's, there's some really interesting things to say about guys, teenage guys and teenage bonding and, and yeah. um, uh, adolescence. But then they did the, the, the DVD spin-offs, things like Beta Camp and um, <clears throat> The Naked Mile and all this kind of stuff. I think the only person who was in them, who was in the originals, was Jim's dad. So Eugene Levy yeah. <laughs> carried yeah. on being in them. But all yeah. the other cast, it was like Stifler's brother was in it, but Stifler himself wasn't in it. No, um, no. And they are, you know, they're bad sex comedies uh, okay. that are d- deliberately straight to DVD. But I want you to have a look at them and see if you can find some, uh, you know, redeeming uh, features. Yeah, some gold <laughs> in amongst the trash. Well, uh, you got, I think you've got three to choose from. So whichever one you want. Okay, well, I'm sure. Yeah, we'll we'll dig we'll dig one out and have a have a go. We do yeah. sequels, uh, unwanted sequels, and straight to DVDs in some of the sections before. So we, we could do definitely pick one of those. So yeah. l- thanks ever so much for speaking me, with me today, James. It's been really great. Oh, it's been an absolute pleasure uh, what, to chat with you. For our listeners, where, where can we find you <laughs> on Tinternet? Um, yeah, well, if you follow me on Twitter, it's James King Movies on Twitter. It's James King Movies on Instagram. And uh, yeah, the book's out. Uh, you can pick that up from online retailers. And then if there's anybody listening in America, it's going to be retitled actually for America called The Ultimate History of 80s Teen Movies. Uh, and that's coming out through Diversion Books in March. So uh, if, you, if you're an American and want to read a a nerdy English guy writing about <laughs> your movies, <laughs> your teenage <laughs> high school movies, then uh, you can do so for March. Excellent. Well, thanks again, James. Absolute pleasure. Thank you. Got one fact for you, or one goof, because you love these things, don't you? I love a goof, yeah. I mean, it's very specific. So uh, around three minutes in, we see Merlin drinking out of a glass bottle with a grooved neck. And that would clearly be a screw-on cap. Now, yes, that's at least a few hundred years ahead of his time. So, yeah, he did, didn't he? Yeah, just. I mean, on. I think even in those times, glass bottles themselves might have been a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, I mean, it's attention a to clear a clear glass bottle. If you're a prop person, this is the sort of stuff you get right. You have one job, literally, and that's to get the props right. And you should, someone... should have had a, a sheep's bladder. Yeah, exactly. Like one of those, yeah, leather, leather things. But you know why they why? didn't have a sheet's bladder? Because the comedic effect of gulping down would not have been visible and pertinent in a sheep's bladder. No, you're right. You're probably right. But I would have loved to have seen as a, it. As a visual gag, it works only in a glass bottle. But, but Matthew, some people will say that it's better to have historical accuracy than, than humour. <laughs> I'm he was saying. going to see a large <laughs> robot man. Living in a cave. Living in a cave. 
Why not, Cave? He's living in the engine well of a crashed spacecraft that has never been found no. before or since. We're going to the review section where we can talk about people that really fucking love this film. Mm-hmm. Like, unabashedly love this film. So I'm, I'm going uh, with his review. Um, and Chris, mm-hmm. I wish you to name me the style in which I will deliver this review. <laughs> oh, God. There's so many good ones. Do it in like a... Your European's quite good because it's just very... And actually, it's, a, it's quite topical to do it in European. So do an well, amalgamation I, of every European continent. <laughs> country. country. All right. No challenge there. Uh, the review... Uh, Devastating Tech is the, uh, the guy's name. Oh, girl's name. Devastating tech. One of the best in recent times. <laughs> Lunatic wide scenario, magnificent visuals and effects. One of the best movies in the last three months. It's not a great wide <laughs> period of time there. He's not gone. <laughs> in the free half. <laughs> it is possible to understand such hatred. All the movies that have appeared in recent times were terrible. This movie is a golden movie rubbish. Better than Mummy, Pirates of the Caribbean, Gardens of the Galaxy. No. Yes. He's saying this movie is better than The Mummy. Yeah. Which I agree with. The Mummy was shit. Well, not Definitely. bad. Pirates of the Caribbean, I'm guessing that's Salpazar's Revenge. Yeah, that's bad. That was quite bad. But Gardens of the Galaxy. Not a chance. Not even a fucking Scooby chance. It was great to watch this after watching King Arthur. Now, I did notice there was a bit of a theme in the comments of people, because I think this film came out at the same time as the Guy Ritchie film, which I don't mind. I've never seen it. I've watched it twice, and it grows on you, that film. Okay. Just saying. Mm -hmm. Um, New movie will be a... About the oh Unicron Unicron was ah uh, not Planetatron because uh, Planetatron um, Earth is actually not Earth. Spoiler alert for future potential Transformers films, but um, Earth is actually a Transformer called Unicron. Right. Again, a, a thread that was never picked up in this fucking thing. Um, it is really embarrassing for such a large scenario, great designs and drawings to hate vomiting. Quid. Oh, Quintessa's stages are enough to give me 10 points. Merlin saves King Arthur with alien scepter before 1600 years. (laughs) (laughs) Cybertron is trying to imagine Earth, but from where it is only in one movie progress. Yeah, so that last paragraph is just (laughs) utter bullshit. Mm. To such large scenarios, great design and drawings to hate vomiting. What's the hate vomit? I don't know. I, I don't know what it refers to. Quintessa's stages are enough to give me 10 points. It's just another 12-year-old boy writing in reviews. We see this all the time. Merlin saves King Arthur of Alien Scepter before 1600 years. <laughs> what the hell? I don't know. It was, I just loved Isn't it because it? It, it just went batshit crazy. Yeah, but it's about it's, it's, it's inco- incoherent, pretty much like the way the film's cut, to be honest. Yeah, uh, it, this I, might have been Michael Bay himself. <laughs> well, I, I have a ten. I have a ten out of ten. Obviously, what would you like me to do in mining? Oh, see, then you maybe do European. 
So you can't do your get to the chopper. Oh God, yeah. Um, do it in Angry Street. Angry Street. You know, in it. Ah, what well, London based? <laughs> yeah, England, England based. London based, England based. So, Okay. Street. I'll do my best. I have to get into character. This one is 10 out of 10. It's called Excellence from Michael Bay. And the, the, the reviewer is He-Man Kamavat. Sounds very angry street to me. Okay. From last four days, I've been reading reviews for this movie. And 95% of audience give it a low rating. Critics are dumb. I know, but audiences now too are becoming dumb. This is the best Transformers movie from Michael Bay, isn't it? I was actually <laughs> waiting for the direction from Michael Bay since I watched 2007, part and age of extinction. He did it. The best director of all time, isn't it? A great cinematic experience beyond imagination. Only Bay can do it. Thank you, Michael Bay, for this. <laughs> okay. I'm getting the sense of, of all the reviews and that we've done, this is the one. This is the one feed that nearly made it out of the bunker. It didn't make it out of the bunker. Did it make it out of the bunker, Chris? Did it? Did it? Did it? Did I mean, it? it's it's a difficult one because this. I mean, ultimately, you know, we have to. I think we have to agree on it, right? Ultimately. And I think there has to be more more good stuff than bad stuff to to redeem it. And I think to me, it just has promise and has funny bits in it. There's a lot more. Yeah. Good than bad, maybe, but it's just, it's just, you know, it's incoherent, it's, it's predominantly incoherent. We haven't decided what to do next time, but um, shall we? Shall we decide? Yeah. We could do, I mean, there is one film that I had an idea to do. Or oh, yeah. I've been recording a few of them. If you want to delve into horror. Could do horror. We haven't done horror really that much. For a while, we did the last key uh, Insidious oh, film, but yeah, that was that was a great podcast. That one, if yeah. you haven't listened to that, <laughs> yeah. um, we could do the film which has recently come on either Netflix or Sky, which is called Winchester. Um, it's got Dame Helen Mirren in it, of all people, and, really? and critically panned beyond belief. And it's an interesting film. Um, but it's a ghost story effect, essentially, but w- with lots of other subplottages going on inside it. And you would think... Oh, I would do that then, Winchester. We've had a little bit of an idea of a way to go forward with the podcast, because we talked about our, in our Twixmas episode, you know, all the good stuff that's going on, um, and all our uh, US uh, friends in the States across the pond who are listening. Um, it's growing and growing in the States. But So we, we basically, we want to give you more content. But we want to give you maybe... A little bit more regular content as well. Let, so. me, give you, let me give you a drum roll, Chris. <laughs> Christ. So, yeah, brilliant. Um, we're going to go weekly. Yeah, we're going to go weekly, but we're going to go weekly uh, a little bit differently. So we, we, we realised that the, the, the worm is being bitten. Uh, the line, the casting line, the net that I'm casting out for interviews is actually... Uh, getting a lot of uh, take up, which is great, but also I'm conscious that we, we don't want to fill the podcast with interviews. So we're going to split the podcast into two. So we're going to give you the usual bi-weekly proper it's in-depth not, film review. Kramer versus Kramer moment. This isn't going to be like... Yeah. We're not splitting up, no. <laughs> <laughs> so we, we want to give... your favourite. <laughs> we want to give you some uh, movie bunker every week, really. So we're going to... Basically, we're going to separate the interviews 
with a little bit of extra stuff, any little bonus bits and pieces that we can find. Maybe me and yeah. you watch a film ad hoc and we want to do a quick review. Or we were thinking of having a, a little segment or a special segment on there every week. Oh, sorry, every other week. Some, I've got to point out, this is an endeavour. We are going to try <laughs> to do this weekly. If the, if the interviews roll uh, dry up, there is no way we're going to be banging out film-based podcasts on a weekly basis so, uh, uh, no absolutely not i mean it'd be, it'd be it'd be if anything it's you know we want the, the interviews to stand alone because they actually are you know we don't want to edit them. i mean the people that chris is getting on the line are insane so that's the plan that's the plan and, um that's the plan so this 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 episode is going to be the last one so we've had the brilliant interview with james king uh, and we know the last we, double you mean the last yeah. The last, yeah, the last big episode. And then we'll hopefully next episode will be coming into your little uh, podcast app quicker than you might have expected it. And it'll be, another, it'll be another interview and then the ball will start rolling with that. Um, so hopefully you'll enjoy that. We'll have to get some feedback from you on that as well. This episode has been long. It's been long. We, we knew it would be because Transformers is Transformers. It's, it's a, yeah, it's a big topic. It's a big topic. But we've, I've thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, it's been nice. It's been lovely. I love to talk about robots. Big, smacking, smacking robots. <laughs> I just wish they would turn into cars more. That's yeah. all. So we'll come back with our next episode with um, Winchester. Yeah, the next film review for Winchester. The next interview will be the next episode. And the next interview, I, I mean, it depends who basically agrees to do it on the day that I've asked them to do it on. <laughs> right. <laughs> I've got about four people. Hey, wait, I basically have to wait until they say, right, yes, I can do it on that day. And then, and so it might happen. It might not happen. You know, it, it, we'll just see how it goes. So if I'm sort of talking myself out of it now, but <laughs> let, let's just end it. it. You're turning into it. Michael Bay. You're <laughs> over-egging it. <laughs> So we'll see. Let's just, maybe we should just edit this bit in. <laughs> we'll see you when we see you. Maybe in the next episode. Oh, that's what the. Bye. 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 God, I'm sozzled. <laughs>